0: Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to First John. We'll be in First John chapter two this morning, and as you're finding your way there, can we uh, appreciate our choir here uh, one more time this morning? I'm certainly thankful, as I trust you are, in, in light of what was just sung, that. We can trust in love, trust in God when he's silent. We could do so not simply f- because that's wishful thinking. Like I really, really want to believe in love even when I don't feel it. We have good grounds to believe in the love of God. Namely in that he sent his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. And it's that God that I want to talk to you about loving him this morning, And not loving that which stands in opposition to him. So we'll find ourselves here in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Hear now the word of God. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes... The pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now that we can come and hear from you. We've had opportunity to speak to you uh, today in, in musical worship. We've had opportunity to speak to you in intercessory prayer, and and now we come to this time of our worship service, and we long for you to speak to us. We believe you continue to speak, and you do so through your word and the ministry of the Spirit who indwells us. And So we ask that we might hear from you today. We need to hear from you. I, I trust some more than others, but all of us need to hear from you. And so come, we ask and speak. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on April 10th, 1912, excuse me, yeah, April 10th, 1912, that the, the Floating City, as it was nicknamed, took her maiden voyage from England to New York City, a ship so large uh, that it was called the Titanic. The size, of course, of the ship was not the only thing that was impressive. It was the most luxurious vessel ever built a gym, a swimming pool. Libraries, high-class restaurants, cherry-trimmed guest rooms. It was built to be the last word in luxury and comfort. Of course, you know it never made it to New York. Four days after its voyage began to hit an iceberg, and two hours and 40 minutes later, it sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. One of the passengers was a young girl, age seven, named uh, Eva Hart. Uh, She survived with her mother. She would uh, remember, of course, the Titanic till the very end of her life. Uh, She remembered the courage of men and boys uh, um, helping women and children onto the lifeboats. She also remembered some cowardly men who dressed up like women in order to try to fool others to get on the lifeboats. Her father was one who helped the uh, women and children onto the lifeboats. Uh, Last words her father said to Eva Hart, hold mommy's hand and be a good girl. She would remember, of course, the sinking till her death in 1996. She vividly recalled that ship sinking. She spoke of the flags that waved the distress rockets that were fired into the air that went unheeded by a nearby ship. She would speak of the ship's band that stood upon the deck as the ship sank, playing the hymn, Nearer, my God, to thee. Still all my songs shall be nearer, my God to thee, nearer to thee. And then she watched the ship tilt upright, snap in half, amidst explosions and rumblings, and then sink, followed by what she would describe as deafening silence, as if the whole world was standing still. 1,522 people died that night as the unsinkable Titanic sank. A first-class ticket on the ship, in today's money, will cost you $76,000. I don't don't know if you have that kind of money lying around, Um, but knowing what we now know, I trust you wouldn't be willing to pay it. In fact, uh, I trust there's probably not any amount of money that you could receive in order to get aboard that boat, despite, I trust, the amazing luxury which you would enjoy, the, the joy, the, the food, probably be best food you ever had in your life, for those four days, you still would not get on the ship, because we know what happens to the ship, we know the joy will not last, it will end in misery. Well, here we are in First John, uh, I think this is our seventh study in this book, as we work, I think, nineteen twenty sermons. I've I, I, plan through the book of First John, and here we find John seeking to warn us that the world and its promises are likewise sinking, right, You best not get on that boat, for he tells us in verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. You do know, of course, that the Bible exhorts us to godliness in, uh, for many reasons. We should be godly, uh, of course, perhaps chiefly out of a, out of a love for God. We should be godly in light of the coming rewards that our Lord will bring. We we should be godly, in, in knowing that Christ might return at any moment, and we want to be found doing His will. But today, we're motivated to godliness because to do otherwise will end in ruin. We should set sail. Or that is to set sail on any other boat that does not, that is not devoted to God is to set sail on a ship that will not reach its destination. So just to, to catch us up where we've been in 1 John, we, if you remember last time, John was very encouraging. He wrote this little poem that we studied here, told us that we belong to God, that our sins are forgiven, that we've overcome the evil one, that you know him who is from the beginning. And uh, we all felt very encouraged and and, um, um, built up. And and now John here moves from encouragement to, once again, returning to exhortation. And and John's going to do this, as I've mentioned, back and forth throughout his books. It's encouragement and exhortation. It's uh, affirmation and admonition. He's like a coach who sometimes needs to tell us, you're doing a great job. And sometimes he needs to yell on us and say, let's go. Right? And John's going to do that back and forth, back and forth. And here he's going to uh, help us. Uh, give us an admonition here. It's found in verse 15. It's the only command in this little paragraph that we'll see. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. It's interesting because John will speak of love in this book more than any other place we'll find in the Bible. 51 different times in these five chapters, John will talk about love. And he will tell us to love uh, repeatedly over and over and over again. We'll, We'll hear you ought to love, you ought to love, you ought to love, except for one time. There's one exception in this book. When he tells us that we shouldn't love, tells us not to love. Which may raise the question, can anything we love be truly bad? I mean, I love it, and doesn't loving it make it therefore good? I mean, can love ever be wrong? According to scripture, yes, it can. Do not love the world, he says. There's the command, it will be followed by two reasons. A very simple sermon this morning, uh, the command not to love, and then the two reasons why we shouldn't love. And I I pray that as we think about our loves today, you might see your heart more clearly and be moved to love God more completely. So we begin with the command here in verse 15, uh, do not love the world, he says. Do not love the world or things of the world, and uh, perhaps you might be as others uh, have been. Uh, immediately confused. I mean, what, what do you mean, don't love? What does that mean, don't love the world? Is uh, this a call to asceticism? Is, this, is that what John's telling us to do? Is this to hate the material things of the world? Uh, does he mean I can't uh, love ice cream? And carnitas, right? And alpine lakes, and soft beds, and zebras, and drum solos, choral music? Am I, not, am I not to love these things, John? What about baseball? Am I not to love baseball? Well, I'm loving baseball a little bit less these days, as you might know, but I still love baseball. What about soccer? I'll leave that for you to decide. Is this a call to hate the things of the world? And then to add to the confusion, John in another place tells us, quite famously, as you know, for God so loved the world (laughs) that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God so loved the world, he gave us Jesus, and now John, the same author, writes here, hey, you better not love the world. So what's going on here? Well, it might be helpful to understand that the Bible uses the word world, or the Greek word cosmos, in different ways. Sometimes it speaks of the world as the physical realm. We might simply call that cosmos, or maybe we call it the universe. We should certainly love that world, right? I mean, God made everything, and it was good. God himself took on humanity in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus became part of the world and forever will be part of the world. As we know, he was risen from the dead, not spiritually, but physically. Jesus, in perfected form, said, do you have something for me to eat? He became permanently part of creation. And so we should, indeed, love the material world just as God loves the material world. Of course, that means we should care for the environment in which we live. You, you know, of course, that our first parents, Adam and Eve, were the first environmentalists. They were given a task, got given a job. What was the job? The job was to care for the natural world, the job was to care for the universe. So sometimes we should, the Bible uses the word world in that sense, and we should certainly love uh, the world in that way. Sometimes the Bible uses the term world to refer to the people of the world, to humanity. Of course, we should love that world as well. We should love people with the compassion that Christ has shown. This is what uh, John means in John 3.16. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. He's not referring to mountains and, and narwhals and, and bagels. That's not the world in which God is loving. God is loving the people. He's loving humanity. Certainly, we should love humanity. But sometimes the Bible refers, uses the word world to refer to the place of rebellion and sin. We might call that worldliness. That's the world we should not love. Indeed, that's the world we should hate. It's a realm of rebellion that John is referring to. It's all the ideas and the systems and the principles and the practices and the attitudes that are stand in opposition to God. This, this type of worldliness seeks to make sin look normal and makes Godliness and righteousness look strange and odd. All you, all you need to do, uh, as you've noticed, I'm sure, you just turn on the television or you take a class or you go to some kind of you know, uh, training at, at your work and you will be presented with the idea that sin is normal and that righteousness is strange, outdated, even bigoted. Right? This kind of family is normal, the biblical kind of family is weird. This kind of sexuality is normal biblical sexuality is weird your college and your virgin that's weird that's strange that's abnormal this is what the world tells us this is why john will write later in john first john 5 19 the devil the whole world is under the influence of the devil the world is in some sense under his domain which is why we find constantly in opposition between the devil and the church, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. These are two groups here who live upon this planet, one under the influence of our enemy, the, under, the other under the influence of our God. And therefore, Paul, John will tell us in chapter 3 and verse 1, the world doesn't understand us. And indeed it will hate you, chapter 3, verse 13, but take heart. According to chapter 5, verse 4, you have overcome the world in Christ. You've overcome the opposition to the world. And so John says, don't love that. Don't love worldliness. Now, at this point, we need to be careful. I really don't want to be misunderstood here. So excuse me if I belabor this point. But to hate the rebellious ways of the world is not to hate the rebellious people of the world. Can I just be clear? I want to be clear there, right? Because we are to hate the system of evil while we love the very people who perpetuate that system of evil. And I think that's challenging. I think we have to work hard at maintaining that balance. And I think quite often Christians miss that balance. There are some who claim the name of Christ, who say that they they will avoid loving the world by, by avoiding loving the people of the world. And they will look at those people and they'll think they're gross they're nasty, they're filthy, and they yell at them and talk about them behind their back and say, we don't want to have anything to do with those kind of people. So they say, I'm not going to love the world, and they do so by not loving the people of the world. And then you have others who claim the name of the Christ who are on the opposite end of the spectrum who say, we will love the people of the world by loving what they do. We will embrace their sin and join in their revolts. We love, we love people by loving the world. So the exhortation here is not love the people and love the world, and it is not hate the world and hate the people of the world, but we are to hate the world and at the same time love the people. And there are two reasons we are given to obey this command. Two reasons, very simple, Once I, as I said, why should we not love the world? Well, first, it's impossible to love the world and God. You can't do both. As you read on in verse 15, we discover if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the the love of the world and love of the Father cannot coexist in the same human heart. Those are incompatible loves. Some things are incompatible. Some things are hard. Some things are incompatible. Like It it, uh, would be hard to drink coffee and cut down a tree at the same time. That would be hard but you could probably do it, okay? But some things you simply cannot do at the same time. You cannot, at the same time, whistle and keep your mouth closed. You cannot uh, take a shower and play a baseball game at the same time. You cannot pet a cat and look masculine at the same time. Okay? (laughs) Some things are incompatible, okay? You, you simply can't do them both, right? Now, what John is saying is you can't love God and the world at the same time. Uh, he who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So in other words, the love, love for the world, listen, is going to push out the love of God. I think the opposite is probably true. The love of God will push out the love of the world, which is why James tells us, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't, you can't do both. You remember, um, gentlemen, when you proposed to your, to your bride, and um, that, that beautiful, wonderful day when you got down on your knee and took out that ring and asked her to be your wife, and you told, declared to her your, your love for her and, and your desire to spend the rest of your life with her her and covenantal marriage, and you, you, you wanted to be with her at her side for the rest of your days. And you, of course, remember how, how she responded, don't you? It was a beautiful response, I trust. My wife actually took three minutes to decide. She said, you know, simply, I need to think about this and went away and just kind of deliberated over that. And, and of course, you knowing me, you can't blame her, can you? So um, <laughs> being married to me is not for the faint of heart. But she did say yes. But I'm sure your wife said yes in a different way, didn't she? There was tears coming down her face and says, I'm so happy you made me the happiest woman ever, and, and I want to marry you and all the rest. And it was wonderful, and, and, and it just began this, this adventure together. Well, what, what if what if you propose to your wife and she says to you, I, 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 can't, I can't wait to marry you, right? I can't wait to live with you. I, I want to create a family with you. I want to grow old with you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you, yes, yes, I will marry you, but you also need to know, I still love Lenny. Right? <laughs> and I'm going to continue to love Lenny. I have no plans to stop loving Lenny. And by the way, Lenny hates you and wants to undermine everything and anything you do. Is that okay? Right? Now, at this point, would you not question her love for you? You would say something, the love that I'm asking from you is incompatible with loving another. You, you, in other words, you can't truly love me with the marital love that I'm seeking and love another at the same time. You cannot say to Jesus, I love you. I love you, Jesus. I wanna serve you. I want to be part of your church. I want to read the Bible. I want to sing in a choir. But please know, I also plan to love the world also. Those two don't go together. No, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it might be helpful at this point to kind of wonder what rivals, potential rivals, we might say, does God have for your love? In in your heart, like, who are your potential Lennies, if you will? And I wonder if you could discover that, that information might be the most important thing you learned today. God, what potential rivals in my heart do I have for you? What energizes you? What thrills you? What do you invest your time in, your money in? And here's the key question. Can you pursue those things out of a pursuit of loyalty and devotion to God? Or do they actually take you from God? Are they removing you from God? We should study our own loves, right? We should identify them and see if they are love of the world. In fact, John is very helpful because he gives us categories in order to look at our life. In fact, there are three, a threefold description of what this worldliness looks like here in verse 16. You see, for he writes, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. So we have this threefold description of worldliness here in verse 16. Notice the first two, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, our desires for things we don't yet have. Desires, these desires come from two locations. They come from within us, the desires of the flesh, and they come from without us, the desires of the eyes. The third, the pride of life, is pride in what you do have. So we might think worldliness is driven by these two realities. Passion for what you don't have and pride in what you do. So let's, let's, let's think about these three terms. Uh, the desires of the flesh this, uh, uh, I I should say that the word desire, it's not a bad word. If your translation says the lust of the flesh, I I have a little bit of trouble with that, that uh, word lust. This same word epithumeo is used by Jesus when he says, I desire to have the last supper with you. It's the same word that Paul describes when he's describing the Thessalonian church. I, I, I desire to be with you. So the, the word desire is not bad. To have desires is not bad. It's, Not referring to some type of illicit lust. What makes it bad is that it comes from the flesh, the desires of the flesh. You say, "What's the flesh?" Well, that's a theological term to talk about kind of what's coming from within you, right? And and if you want uh, an easy way to know what the flesh is, is you knock off the H and reverse the letters. And I stole that from somebody, by the way. That's not original. You knock the flesh. You take off the H. You got F L E S. Reverse it. S E L F. Self. So desires of. Uh, the, the self, like the love of self, seeking whatever I want, whatever I want to do, whatever gratifies me. And by the way, this is the world's message to you. This is, if there is a message that the world is giving to you, it is you be you, you do what you want to do, you be whoever you want to be, you, you, you change whatever you want to change about yourself, there's no restrictions whatsoever, there's nothing holding you back, you just follow you. In fact, the only sin left in this world that we can commit today is not being true to yourself. Right? And so you just, do whatever you desire, For whatever comes from within you, you go and get that. And by the way, the desires from the flesh, the desires that come from the self, they're they're not always bad things. They could be good things. They could be noble things. Like how one commentator wrote, there's the desires of the gutter and the desires of the gourmet. There's the desires of penthouse and the desires of Picasso. There's the desires for the crude and desires for the cultured. These could be good things. These could be bad things. But the good things become bad things when you begin to live for them. You live for them. They become your idols. They become your gods. Take money, for instance. Money's not bad. I, I, I enjoy money. I'm thankful to have it, some of it. Right? I could use more, actually. Right? Yeah, but when you start to live for money, right? when you start to spend all your money certainly on yourself, well, then, then it becomes a bad thing. Or food. Food is wonderful. Food is one of the greatest joys of my life. Right? The problem is not that you love food, the problem is you live for food. And it begins to control your life, or rest, or leisure. That's good, isn't it? We, we delight in leisure. I just celebrated my 25th wedding anniversary down in Cancun. It was delightful, I can't wait to go back, right? And, and that's wonderful. But some people are driven to have fun more than anything else that drives them in their life. Some people are addicted to play. It might be because their jobs are so unfulfilling. It seems we used to choose jobs based upon what, where I'm gifted at and what would be helpful, choosing jobs in a God-honored way. Today, it seems like we choose jobs in a world-loving way. We, what's going to give me the most money or, and or the most status? And I think today, people work jobs to make money that are utterly unfulfilling, which leads to emptiness in their life, and therefore, they live for the weekend to fill up that emptiness. They live for play, or what John would say, the desires of the flesh. A second category of worldliness is the desires of the eyes, as he turns from the temptations that don't come from within, but the temptations that come from without, and these temptations primarily come to us through these two-inch wide openings that we have on our face, our eyes. It seems our eyes exercise more power over us than perhaps any other part of our body. The world knows this, of course. This is why we live in a world of images, to seduce us into desiring that which is illicit, that which would take us from God. We're drawn in by the visual. The Bible testifies to this, by the way. The world just got this from reading Scripture, perhaps. I mean, we, we already have read for us this morning, Genesis 3, when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good and the food was pleasing to the eye, she took and ate. Or Achan says, when I saw the plunder in the plunder a beautiful robe, I coveted it. Or David, he saw a woman bathing and she was beautiful and he sent messengers to take her. we are tempted through the eyes perhaps more than any other part of our body which is why the world continually presents things to our eyes convinced we need it, we should live for it you should be wary of the temptations that come through the eye gate teenagers, you should be wary of what you see adults, you should be wary of the images that we are constantly besieged with as many of them, perhaps most of them, will bring us to love the world. Well, thirdly, he talks about the pride of life. Worldliness, in other words, consists not just in what you want, but in what you already have. I don't know if your translation has that footnote there, pride in possessions. I, most people think that's a good translation. This is some pride in the things we have. We make an idol out of what we drive, how we look, the house we live in. The behavior of our children, the education we attained, we want applause, we want likes on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is, I want views on YouTube, whatever it is, we want a secretary, we want a title, we want a position, we want people to think I'm smart or witty or athletic or musically talented or rich or attractive, we want that type of acclaim. And I I wonder, of of the three categories of worldliness in which he lays out for us in verse 16, I wonder if this is worse than all, worse than all three. I mention that because we, we simply don't think that way. I've been uh, in vocational ministry for 24 years now, and I don't think I have had a single person come and seek counsel, and, and, and the counsel began, Pastor, I'm really, really arrogant, and I need help. Right? We don't think of pride as a big deal. right? We dismiss pride. Can I tell you God doesn't? The Lord Jesus Christ said, It's the prostitutes and the tax collectors that are closer to the kingdom of heaven than the arrogant. I think C.S. Lewis was right when he says, teachers often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity, that is by pride. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride, just as he would be quite content to see your ingrown toenails cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Tolstoy's short story, How Much, uh, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Have you? You, it's in public domain. it takes you about 45 minutes to read. It's a very, very uh, compelling little short story. I actually, I'm going to ruin it for you right now, so never mind. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's about a man who toils to get land, and he finally gets the land, and he's, he's very delighted with his, his land that he has. In fact, Tolstoy wrote, so he became a landowner, plowing and sowing his own land, making uh, his hay on his own land, cutting his own trees, seeing cattle on his own pasture. Uh, went out in the fields, his heart would be filled with joy but he eventually grows discontent, and he concludes, you know, I just need a little more land, right, and so he works real hard and buys a little more land, and he's happy for a little while, but then he grows content, discontent, and the cycle goes over and over and over again. There's quite never enough land, and then he finds uh, out that there's a tribe that's actually selling its tribal land, and for a thousand rubles, uh, which evidently wasn't a lot of money. You, you could you could buy as much land as you could possibly secure in a day, uh, and, and, and the rules are you 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 start out at sunrise and you just begin to go by foot, and all the land you circle becomes yours as long as you make it back by sunset. And so, right off at sunrise, the the man uh, begins his run and he gets this part and he gets this part and he, gets, and he thinks, of, Well, I just hurry a little bit. I could just, that, that piece over the hill or that lake over there, I can just, if I could just get around that lake. And as, as the day wears on, he, he's exhausted, but his thirst for land never seems to be sated. Just a little more, just a little more. Of course, the danger is he won't make it back by sunset and then he'll get nothing. And so he strains and strains and, and the sun's going down and the tribe is cheering as he, he comes in running. And he, he finally makes it as he falls before the chief right before the sun sets. His servant rushes up to him to, to lift him up and celebrate all the land in which he's secured. And yet he finds that his master has died. He pushed himself just a little too far. And so the servant picks up a shovel and digs a grave. And Tolstoy, who entitled this story, How Much Land Does a Man Need?, concludes with these words Six feet from head to heel was all the man needed. I think his point lands well, at least it does in my heart. These things won't satisfy you. There's always another Amazon box, isn't there? I I, I understand what it promises. But it won't. It won't. The world will not satisfy you. It's like, a, it's like a cold french fry. It looks so promising. But then you, you think, what did I do that for? But then what do you do? You think, well, maybe I'll try another. Okay. My brothers and sisters, who do you love? Let me just give you a couple of diagnostic questions before we move to our last point. Are, are you living for comfort? Uh, in other words, are you avoiding hard things in your life that might bless others or lead to eternal rewards just because they're hard? They might make you uncomfortable. Are, are you focused primarily on your external appearance, or are you working as well to cultivate an inner beauty? Do you want to make your name great, or do you labor to make God's name great? Are, are you deceiving your parents And there's stupid rules that you might think? Or do you seek to please God by obeying your parents in everything? Are you teaching your kids to love themselves and to seek their own fulfillment and their own advancement? Or are you teaching them to love God and to seek his honor? Do you look to your spouse to fulfill your needs? Or do you look at them as as an opportunity to exemplify Christ-like service? Do you spend all your money on yourself as if this world is all there is? Or are, are you using your money to change other people's lives? Perhaps to impact people's lives who will live 100 years from now that you'll never meet, but you do so out of a love for God. You can love the world or you can love God, you can't do, can't do both. At this point, uh, John, of course, can rest his case. It's pretty convincing, isn't it? But he add, just, just for good measure, he adds a second reason why we should not love the, love the world And he tells us, for it's foolish to love the world and not God. And we see this very clearly in verse 17, don't we? And the world is passing away along with its desires. He says, therefore, don't love the world because it's doomed. It's all going to fall apart. It'll all sink. The party will end. The money will run out. The face will begin to sag. It's all passing away. However alluring the world is, you will lose everything that you desire after, everything that you boast in if you live for it. I like that the phrase there in verse 17, not just the world is passing away, and, and with its desires, it's, it's almost like the, the aroma uh, in the room lingers just for a moment, and then that too is gone. If, if you're a Christian, this verse ought to cheer your hearts, I think, the system of rebellion will end. Praise God. All right. no, 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 more, uh, no, no more lust, no more covening, no more insecurity, no more anxiety, no more fear, no more um, sin, it's passing away. You should hold on to that verse. That's true. It's passing away. It's, of course, therefore foolish to put your love there, isn't it? I mean, you don't buy stock in a company you know is going bankrupt. You don't board a ship you know is going to sink. You don't lay up treasures where rust and moth destroy. Right? It's foolish. And you know it's foolish. Don't we shake our head at, at uh, famous people who have great careers and they throw their career away for 30 minutes in a hotel room? And we think, what a fool, why would, you, why would you give up all that you've accomplished just for, for, for just a few minutes of illicit pleasure? Uh, certainly, I see this in my profession, it seems like at least every month, if not every week, some prominent pastor seems to have been ministering for 20, 30 years, seems to throw away his entire ministry for an afternoon of illicit pleasure. And, and we shake our heads and think, how foolish, who would make that trade? And yet, how many people are throwing away eternity for a few decades? Was it Jesus who not said, What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? This world is, is all vanity now and it's gone tomorrow. I'm thankful uh, for the work of John Bunyan, as I've shared many times in the sermon series uh, from Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, His allegory on the Christian life that he wrote in 1674. It's in my heart after having just read it to my children over the last handful of months. It's the story of the main main character is a man named Christian. He's uh, on a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city along the narrow road. And at some point in his journey, he comes to Vanity Fair. If you ever wondering where that term came from, it came from the Baptist pastor, John Bunyan in 1674. He writes, Then I saw my dream, a town before them, and... The name of that town is Vanity, and at the town there is a fair kept called Vanity Fair because all that is there is sold, all that is there is sold, uh, sold as vanity. Therefore, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts. As prostitutes, bods, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. And moreover, at this fair, there is at all times to be seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, rogues, and that of every kind. Here, uh, to be seen too, and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swears, profanities, and that of a blood red color. Well, as Christian and Faithful walk, uh, walk through the town, they're asked by the hawkers, what will you buy? Faithful says, uh, we buy the truth and we see none of it for sale here. Well, that infuriates the town and Faithful there is martyred in the town of vanity while Christian escapes to continue his pilgrimage to the celestial city. Now, that book is 350 years old. Commenting on that book 100 years ago was the English pastor W.J. Dawson, who writes, It was the vanity fair where the pilgrims of eternity forgot their noblest purposes and were allured from their divine quest. Its gaiety and glory, its glittering baubles and visions of beauty, bewitched the sense and made man forget the greatness of his origin and the greatness of his destiny its booths of pleasures and chambers of delights, its novelty and fascination and airy laughter, where men were allured to destruction and forgot they were pilgrims and sojourners. And what, after all, was the world but a mere series of shows and vanities like a village fair, all alive at night with light and music, and in the morning nothing left but trodden grass and a broken pole or two to mark where it had been. It was passing away like a stage picture upon which the curtain would soon fall. I tell you this morning, that's the world. And you may have the time of your life for four days, but it will be gone. It is sinking. In contrast to the destiny of the world, you notice John tells us the destiny of Christians, for he writes there at the end of verse 17, but whoever does the will of God abides forever, abides forever. There are two destinations, destinations and your loves will take you to one or the other, right? We, we're told here that the world is not made of material that will last. It's, I, just, I just need you to hear this. It's lying to you. The world is lying to you. It says, I will last forever. And it won't. I'm telling you the truth. from The very word of God doesn't take much interpretation at all. It will pass away. It will be gone one day. And it will take you with it if you love it. But if you love God, he says, well, you will abide forever. Of course, that's not exactly what he says. He says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Not whoever loves God, uh, but whoever obeys God, whoever does God's will. And this in John is one of the many places we find in his many writings where, he, where we connect the love of God, which will lead to obedience to God. Of course, Jesus in the book of John says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so we know that if you love God, you will love what God wills, and therefore you will do his will And so the person who indeed loves God and therefore does God's will will abide forever. Those those are the two destinations. There seems to be no other option. There's not a third choice. You can love the world, and that can lead to damnation. You can love God, and that will lead to eternal life. And I believe there is nothing else in all of creation that's more important than answering that question. In fact, maybe even as I preach, as we close our time together, you might think, just sitting where you are, uh, Stephen, I, I don't I don't feel much of a love for God. And I do, to be if I were honest, I do feel great love for the world. I do, my my heart races after it. Perhaps your love has grown cold. Perhaps it's become weak. Like you used to have a burning heart for God. And now it's just kind of like a smoldering stump. Maybe at camp you were just on fire for God and and, and, and now that fire's grown low. And love of the world keeps pouring water upon that fire, keeps dousing your love for God. If that's you, you would do well to plead with God, even where you sit right now. God, I, I don't love you as I ought to. Please, will you help my love for you to grow? And that you would seek for your love to grow by understanding who Christ is and what he has done and how, who he has made you in him. And that you will be around other Christians within the church who also are on fire for God. That you would not be passive and just shrug your shoulders and say, I'm just not that kind of person. I just really love the world and I don't really love God. It's who I am. Oh, and you'd be lukewarm and loving it and just kind of just go on with life. It's a very dangerous place to be. Well, perhaps you hear some of this and, and you conclude that Maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe that's not even novel to you, that you walked in here knowing you weren't were a Christian. It, it is true, isn't it? And, and you know this, that, that many people develop Christian practices and Christian vocabularies and, and participate in Christian ministries because of the family in which they're raised. But they've never been changed by the Holy Spirit, never been given new birth and a great love for God. And if that You would identify as that. Maybe you're not a Christian, but everybody thinks you are. I pray that you would plead with him. That, God, you would take out this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh, as your scripture tells, that I might love you, that you might talk to someone, say, I need help here, that you you might indeed not pass away with this world. And, of course, I would say, lastly, that my brothers and sisters in Christ who do love the world well, uh, love God well and not the world. That we should speak of this to our neighbors, don't you think, and our coworkers and our classmates? Right? Uh, we, 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 should, we should I mean we're, in some sense, you know, we're all around people who are sinking, aren't we? And I wonder if you could go to work tomorrow, go to school tomorrow, and, and risk a very awkward question. That you might, you know, at the lunch table say, "Do you think this world will last forever?" Just get the ball rolling. Do you think things will always be the same? Or maybe you can even take another one step farther. And you say, I don't think this world will last forever. What do you think? I don't want to live for this world. What are you living for? I wonder, why does God have you where he has you in the places where he has put you? Is it not, in some sense, to show others that there's another way to live, there's another uh, one to give your heart to, that you would you would live for God? I hope there's something in our lives that show we're not living for the world. I hope that's obvious to our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors as we try to help them see ultimate realities. In some sense, we're all, you know, on the deck of a sinking ship, aren't we? I think we, we would do well to warn others of that danger, like Pastor John Harper did, a 39 year old widower who was traveling from England to Chicago, where he was going to begin pastoring a new church in Chicago, along with his six year old daughter, who happened to survive the Titanic's sinking. The survivors recall Pastor Harper shouting, Women, children, and the unsaved into lifeboats. I don't know if we could do that anymore. And then, uh, once the lifeboats were down, he began to preach from the deck of the Titanic. His sermon text was Acts sixteen and verse thirty-one: "Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved." In the ship's final moments, as everyone began to jump from the Titanic into the icy Atlantic, uh, Pastor Harper removed his life jacket and handed it to a man who said he wasn't a believer. And as he did, he exhorted him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Even in the frigid water of the Atlantic, he continued to plead with those around him to come to Christ. I mentioned 1,522 people died in the Atlantic Ocean on, on that uh, day. Um, six six people were pulled from the water into a lifeboat. Of, that's a, 1,528 people made in the water. Six got pulled out. The other 1,522 died. One of them, who was pulled out, remembers an encounter with Pastor Harper, and he would later write, I was floating in the frigid water when Mr. Harper, clinging to a piece of wreckage, floated near me. Man, he said, are you saved? (laughs) No, I said, I am not. Then the waves bore him away, but strangely enough, brought him back a little later, and he said to me again, Are you saved now? (laughs) No, I said. I cannot honestly say that I am. He said to me, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Moments later, hypothermia claimed him. And I saw his body sink beneath the waters. And just then, I was pulled out by survivors in one of the lifeboats. And there that night, With two miles of ocean underneath me, I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved. Do you? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Haven't you discovered by now that this world only leaves you wanting more? Some of you have given your entire heart to the world, and still you want more. Once again, Lewis is helpful, isn't he, when he says, if I find in myself desires with nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You are made for another world, and Jesus Christ came into our world in order to bring us to his. He did so by becoming a man dying on the cross to bear the wrath of a holy God upon himself for my sin, and for the sin of all who would trust in him. And as he foretold, three days later, he rose historically, bodily, physically from the grave, appeared to 500 people, and now stands as the crucified Savior and the resurrected Lord. And so I tell you this morning, I encourage you this morning, I exhort you this morning, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Our Father, we're thankful for the work of our Lord, How is it then, in light of who he is and what he offers us and what he has done in our life, we will be ever, ever be tempted to run after another lover? May we have victory in not loving the world, not simply by this great self-effort we make, but rather that Jesus is so beautiful and so glorious and so wonderful in our hearts, To to love anything that would take us from him would have no compulsion upon us at all. This world is in opposition to you. You will have victory over it. You have had victory over it. It is passing away. Let us then, we pray, not love it, but love the one who has sent to save us from it. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.